newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis on stuff in the news media in recent days. I'm Rex Smith of the Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union, here with Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady, now vice president of the New York Press Association. Ira Fussfeld, the former publisher of the Daily Freeman in Kingston and affiliated publications, and the Honorable Alan Shartok, CEO of Northeast Public Radio. Honorable. You mean I'm not former? <laughs> the former. Well, the former publisher of the Fire Island, uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> whatever, whatever it was, yeah. or examiner. <laughs> so we ought to talk about you know the most important issue confronting the world, indeed America, in recent days and weeks, and that is, of course, an object full of hot air that has captured attention, and that would be Matt Gates. No, sorry, that would be George Santos. I thought you had finished the introductions of <laughs> right. <us. laughs> So there's been an awful lot of coverage about the Chinese balloon, and I just wonder if this is not a ripe topic for critique of the media. Has it been overblown? You're a political scientist. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say, Dr. Shartok? Is it a distraction? It's what I would call intuition. You know, editors like yourself and Judy and Ira, you take a look at a story and you say, hmm, You know, people are going to be interested in this. And so we're going to play it because they are, because of the interest factor. So, you know, a balloon floating over your head in America launched by somebody else might be in that category. Hmm. Well, I think it took several days, perhaps understandably so, for there to be context put into this story. The initial reaction of most people was, oh, isn't that quaint? There's a balloon up there. And then the secondary reaction was, wait a minute, why is there this balloon up there? And should we shoot it down and all of that kind of stuff? And now in the days that have followed, we have a better sense through the reporting that these balloons are not terribly unusual. We may well have them up there ourselves and that the president reaction to the balloons was probably appropriate in that he did not want it shot down over land because it could pose a danger to the Americans. So it's a short way of saying I think the beginning was more curiosity and probably overblown, to use your phrase, but I think it's been put in context now. And let's note that this story began when a local newspaper reporter looked up in the sky and took a photograph. In fact, they thought it was so urgent they held it for a day or two before they even published it. It was Billings, Montana. It was a, this is a great cable television story because you can monitor it, you can track it. How important that aspect of it is is very dubious. But again, the context issues and even the issue that similar balloons have been traipsing across the United States before, I think there's a real story. 
The other thing I had a problem with is calling it a balloon. I mean, it's the size of football fields. And, you know, I had a vision of a child's birthday balloon or bigger or maybe a weather balloon. I just thought the use of the word balloon trivialized what was happening, although I think a lot of the coverage trivialized. Well, somewhere in between a blimp and a balloon. Yeah, I, I would have been happier with a blimp. But probably that's not accurate as well. You know, the, the other thing I noticed, the day that the balloon was shot down, Fox News, when it was reporting it after the fact, had a chyron on the bottom of the screen that said, paraphrasing, balloon shot down live on Fox News. They, they, <laughs> happened, they happened to have had the camera on at just the right time. Excellent. But they took credit for it. Of course. Absolutely. Well, I don't know whether Jesse Waters pulled the trigger, but... There's a question of how much tension this kind of thing would have if it weren't for the kind of right-wing media ecosystem that we now have that has that is so eager to trumpet. And there's another play on words, Trump, at anything that mm-hmm. might appear embarrassing to the incumbent Democratic administration. But it is, I think Alan's original point is correct. It's something that is, you know, the thing is, it's easy to grasp this. It's easy for listeners, readers, viewers to understand there's this spy element here, whereas there's been a lot of great investigative reporting that we have barely noticed about the state of American-Chinese relations and the and the espionage that goes on between the two countries. And that kind of thing, of course, doesn't get much attention, but boy, you've got a balloon floating over the United States that even a local photographer can capture in Billings. You know, you've got a story because it is accessible. So, exactly. And seriously, I understand that there's some concern about something floating in the sky and looking down, but how much can you really see from the air? Digitally, I'm sure the intrusion by Chinese spies is much greater than what's happening in the air. I I was curious to see how the right wing would twist it. I used to always listen to Rush Limbaugh to see how he could twist any kind of news because I said there's no way. I mean, you don't want to shoot it down and have it fall on people. You do want to disable it, and that seemed like that happened. So what could the right wing do with it? But they did it. They always do. (laughs) I'm still not sure of the rationale of what they did. but It's Joe's fault. It's all got to be Joe's fault. If you folks have views, media at WAMC.org is how we get email, and we're always happy to hear about that. So we were talking about Fox News, and one of the things that I think is a great threat is these are real people, however, of course, who sit there. Tucker Carlson is a real person. We think. Should be. But we actually are getting to the point of deep fakes being almost good enough. And I think as artificial intelligence gets a little bit more sophisticated, just a bit, we're going to have content that is good enough to replace and actually delude people into thinking that they're seeing something real. And I think it's not too early for us in journalism to be thinking, how do we differentiate what is real from from what is fake? And do we need to have almost a certification process that would say, this is human, this is curated by real human beings as opposed to being disinformation or being a deep fake. But then you get into this constitutional question or you get into the argument about how the press needs to be freewheeling. You don't want to have any kind of a certification because that interferes with our First Amendment rights. So I just caution, I just think this is worth weighing as we think about artificial intelligence coming in. Well, we, we've already seen the technology evolve to the point where you can see a video of a celebrity. The one that comes to mind immediately to me is Tom Cruise. And there's this video of Tom Cruise saying whatever it is Tom Cruise wants to say. The only thing is, it's not Tom Cruise. It looks just like him. But the technology has enabled people who want to play around with this thing to invent a Tom Cruise. And this is just a fanciful thing, but it's got a potential to be very dangerous if people start putting 
putting up phony videos or phony stories that look entirely real until you realize they're not real. Are you sure you're Ira Fussfeld? <laughs> Nobody else wants to look like you know, me. And the Associated Press had some pretty high standards in terms of vetting any videos that they would distribute. They wanted to make sure that they knew who took them, where they were taken, to, legitima- <laughs> to legitimize there them. There you go. And so there was that degree of credibility with it. But when you see today how important videos are, for example, a video of someone being arrested and being beaten, we take it you know, at mm-hmm. face value, the fact that this video is real. But once people start to challenge the credibility of those videos, we're in a whole different realm of possibilities. And I think finding some way to certify them is a great idea, and it's something that we should all look for. You know, the New York Times digital platform offered us an opportunity a few months ago to actually play with images because a lot of the characters that we see in advertisements are not real people. They look like real people, but they've been manipulated. And so you see an image shifting from being a man with gray hair and you keep changing this image a little bit and it becomes a blonde woman. Same image, but you can actually manipulate it. And it's as easy as writing an email, as one of the analysts said. You can have a character who can manipulate to speak in 120 different languages and accents, offering more than 85 characters to choose from. Those are AI avatars, basically. And I think you're right. The difficulty is, how do you distinguish? If you're a journalist and somebody shares with you a video that seems to implicate someone, that seems to be, if you're a a local editor and it's your local member of Congress who has suddenly seemed to say something truly outrageous, which they do anyway, how are you able to distinguish and say, yes, that's worth using unless you have some sophisticated software that can detect the fakes. But if you don't have it and you use it anyway, then at the very least, you must tell your listeners or readers that the source of this video couldn't be verified. The one big out would be you call the congressman and say, did you say that? And typically they'll admit to it and offer some sort of explanation. I mean, that doesn't always happen, but that's the easy out for the local news editor. All of us who have cell phones are already able to do some of this right now. I know my grandsons love to FaceTime with us, and then they grab the phone and they hit a program, and all of a sudden one of the faces looks like a dog or something like that. Happened to me last night. (laughs) (laughs) Is that right? Can you just say roof for all (laughs) You know, Judy mentioned the video showing cops beating up someone. And of course, this has been such a hot topic in the wake of what happened in Memphis and has before. It is important to note that the murder in Memphis was specifically misrepresented by the cops to the journalists. And I think any of us who have covered police departments or courts know that there is a great tradition of police lying to mm-hmm. journalists. And it just makes it all the more difficult for journalists to have to deal with that. But when a crime is committed, usually your only source of information Mm-hmm. is the cops. What do you do? Right. You want to protect yourself from libel as well because you don't want to be in a position of accusing someone of a crime. When you write a story about that, if you say the police said, then that protects you in terms of libel. But when you talk to the people on the street who saw something and point to someone else, that doesn't protect you from libel unless it's true and truth always prevails. You know, it's a hard lesson because early on in a young reporter's career, you will think that the police do know what they're talking about and are giving you accurate information. And 
once in a while you'll get uh, police officers that will pull you aside and say, the real story is this, but you have to develop those sources and that takes time. And it's harder now than ever, at least at the smaller newspapers like the one I used to run. You know, we had a quote-unquote police reporter. Every day the police reporter would start his day either on the phone or at the police station jotting down what was on the blotter. Then it would more or less get in the paper that way. Now, if there was a story that cried out for more information, well, we had the police reporter who could free him or herself up to do it. But now we don't have that luxury anymore. There's, and a lot of these departments have PR people, who, and you can't even talk to a right. police officer anymore. You have to talk to the lieutenant who's in charge of that, and obviously that's going to get filtered through the bureaucracy. I was intrigued by reading a Columbia Journalism Review article that talked to one of my old colleagues, an Irish guy named Jimmy Mulvaney, and, and Jimmy was a cops reporter for Newsday, and he would start his day by buying a box of Dunkin' Donuts, and he would go to talk to the cops who were all, like him, Irish guys who came from working class roots, and they established rapport. And He, he was could, the donuts that done it? The donuts. <laughs> 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 he couldn't help it. And, you know, you get this stereotype of, you know, the cops have to have the donuts, but it actually worked. And he would bring in donuts. They'd sit there and have coffee, talk about the cases. When I covered courts, the lawyers knew me. They would open up these confidential crime files of everybody who was going to get arraigned. And I'm sitting there going through the files, knowing that I'm actually probably not supposed to see some of this stuff. But you establish a rapport and you get to trust someone, but you always have to be a reporter and know that they're potentially lying to you. They're telling you information because they have a reason to share that information with you. They don't usually share information that's counterproductive to what their narrative is. So you have to always keep that in mind. Hmm. Not for the public good often. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why, Alan, we've often talked about this in this program, diversity in the newsroom is important because you are better able to establish a broader range of sources if all of the people in your newsroom aren't just white Irish guys like the police department. If you're able to actually talk to people in the community to get a better sense of the view from other than you know, one of my first mentors in writing an appraisal of my work said, Mr. Smith has a weakness for the language of experts and authorities. I wasn't suspicious enough, and I tried to correct that. Well, you know, Rex, over the years who, on this program, you've made the point that there aren't enough black news people, and that that perspective becomes so important when you're reporting on a story. Right. That is exactly one of the things. And we've talked about how difficult it is to get that kind of diversity. Yeah, and it, again, let me toot the horn of local papers. They have the hardest time because there is a small pool of reporters of color and they tend to get hired by the larger institutions that are also struggling. They continue to struggle. Even the New York Times struggles sure. with this. But if you're at a small local paper, especially if you only have one reporter, it is a real hard problem to tackle. Well, but Rex has made the point, and I think it's correct, that when you send somebody into a minority community, for example, you get a different result if you have somebody who himself or herself is minority, and you get a different outcome. Do we think that that applies as well to political coverage? Is there anything we can do to better connect to, I don't know how else to say this, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world? Maybe I shouldn't be quite so extreme, but is there some implicit bias in the media? You know, people self-select and say, I'm going to become a journalist. And we don't have a litmus test in hiring. We don't say, are you a political progressive? But I think that the right would tell you that they are not represented in the 
the mainstream media and that that is part of their complaint about our coverage. Well, that's probably true, Rex, and you have to stop and sort of look back and say, okay, how come it is so that reporters have less conservatives in their ranks than other people do? And the answer is because there's a difference between right and wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) Well, but I detect over the last number of years a conscious effort on the part of larger newspapers and the networks to try to get into communities such as the Marjorie Taylor Greene community to try to find out who the people are who live in these communities and why they are supportive of her in this case or what is her background coming out of these communities? What is she bringing to Washington? So I think there is more of that. I'm not sure how impactful it is, but I I do think that it is an attempt on the people who are in charge of what are considered to be liberal publications and broadcasts to try to get that view in their publications or on their air. Well, all three of you here, not me, but all three of you, have been basically assignment editors yourselves. You have been editors of papers, and you have to make these crucial decisions as to who goes where all the time. And how much does that impact you? And having someone with a conservative background, that's important because they will come and pitch stories that if Mm. you are not of that line of thought, you wouldn't have thought to write. Or people with conservative backgrounds will question a story that's already been printed and will challenge positions. And I think having that kind of internal Mm -hmm. dialogue in a newsroom is important. And but how do you know? How do you how do you know what a person's political? I mean, do you do ask that in a job interview? You listen for about two and a half minutes, and you know. Right. You don't ask it in a job interview, but if they start asking questions about a particular story, maybe it's a Roe versus Wade story or maybe it's a Trump story. If you listen to the questions they have or you talk around the water cooler, you can get a sense of where people stand. Although I have had reporters come up to me and say, you have no idea what my political persuasion is. Not that I would even care, but I think they will want me to know that I'd be surprised. Well, which generally means I'm a liberal, but I know how to talk conservative. No, usually it's I'm a conservative, but you think I'm a liberal. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. do we want to know? I don't want to know who our reporters are voting for. As long as I'm convinced that my reporters enter a story trying to be thorough and accurate and all of the rest... I don't care what who he votes or she votes for. You know, I really don't know, but we recently had a panel on the air with one John Faso on it, who is a fairly conservative Republican and has served as a Republican in the legislature and all the rest. And in Congress. And, and, and uh, in Congress. And as the, right. the Republican nominee for governor for yeah, some one time. That, huh? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And we got a ton of mail from conservatives <laughs> saying... Thank you for having a conservative on, finally, on your air. So people are listening. Sometimes they're hiding, but they're there. Yes, but you're talking about a program that is intentionally point of view, where people are giving their perspectives. It is an analysis program. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is when you've got reporters trying to do coverage. And one of the great topics of conversation among journalists these days is the value of so-called objectivity in reporting that we have had for a couple of generations now, the sense that journalism is supposed to be neutral in its presentation, as though that is possible. And the difficulty is that if you're trying for neutrality, you don't want any point of view to come in to the coverage. And there's a sense among the new generation of editors that that kind of objectivity is 
impossible. Exactly. And therefore, we shouldn't even try to do it. And I wonder if that's No, well, you possible. should try to do it, but the assessment that it's impossible is correct. You know, people have points of view, and no matter what, those points of view will come out when they're talking. Hmm. So how does that manifest itself? In other words, you send a reporter out to cover the State of the Union address. Do you want his, him or her to come back with a story that says Biden gave a great speech or that Biden gave a lousy speech or that the Republicans were... Or that. I've talked to several people who heard the speech and they said it was wonderful, which is really them giving their assessment. It's almost impossible to avoid it, Ira. Well, I guess what I'm saying is you don't want to call it objectivity. Don't call it objectivity. But I still think that we owe it to our readers and listeners and viewers to present it as an accurate appraisal of what happened that you're covering, that it's going to be fair, it's going to be accurate. Now, I would argue that sounds like being objective to me. But if you don't want to call it, don't call it that. And it doesn't mean that in today's world where there is sort of nuances put in, you can't say Trump said this, but he's been known to lie. I mean, that's a sentence that would not have gotten in years ago. Now you see more of that in stories. But that's still, I would argue, objective. Yeah. I think this is actually where editors come in because it is in making decisions about who you hire and in what stories you push. Really, a lot of the decisions that go to the nuance of a person's point of view come in deciding what stories to cover. Now, you need to take advantage of the lived experience of your staff, I'd say, so that, for example, if you have more gay reporters on your staff, then you will have a better understanding of the issues that confront the gay community. Same thing, of course, with the Hispanic reporters. And, and so, so give me an example of the gay issue that you've just raised. I hear people come onto the air and say things like so-and-so who is openly gay. I don't know that you would have heard that, you know, 20 years ago. That may be so. You're certainly talking about being able to reach people who have a point of view about how their life is lived. I don't know. Does it make a difference? I hate to admit, but we had precious few minorities when I was at the paper. And it wasn't because we didn't want minorities. It was because we only had so many openings. And minorities were in such demand that larger publications were scooping them up. But when we did have minorities, we were getting stories that we had never knew existed because they knew the minority community. That is so interesting, you know. I always have thought that Harvard, for example, had first call on all quality academics. And if you were a gay academic, your chances of getting scooped up by Harvard was pretty good because they wanted a you know, quality staff, which was representative or representative of their constituency. I don't know. I think the more prestigious newspapers, radio stations, television stations have first call on representation of various communities. Uh, Without don't you? a doubt. We, yeah. we, we would, I, I recall, I've told this story a hundred times. We sent our managing editor to a jobs fair, minority jobs fair, and he has his little table, and he's sitting next to a major newspaper, and both want the same person. Guess who's going to get the minority? Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but of course, we sitting around this table would be resistant to the notion that only the great news organizations get the dibs on. on no, folks. but they're get there. There are people. There are minority journalists, and and I'm, I don't say this to castigate them. It's not their fault. But there are people who were hired by larger publications who were not ready to be working for larger publications. But how could you turn down the offer if you've got it? I mean, most journalists no matter what their color or their orientation, start at smaller publications, smaller TV stations, and learn the craft. The good ones eventually move along. 
That, so what are you really saying here? I mean, this is very interesting. I'm saying that it's so, so if I'm black, yes. I would have to work real hard to get onto a newspaper because of the continual prejudice that used to exist. No, I, I'm saying, again, I'm, I remember I'm retired nine years, but the, if, if you're black and you wanted nine to go years. in the newspaper business, there was a much better chance that you would be hired initially by a large publication than a small publication because the large publication is more attractive to you. In the old days, the large publication wouldn't want to hire somebody with that little experience. Do you not find that? As well, as Rex would say, hmm. It becomes a value, though. I mean, I think there is value in having that uh, diversity that is that needs to be weighed by an editor as against the value of experience. You know, there are many elements that go into making somebody capable of being a great journalist, and one of those is where you come from. And I've said before that I like to hire reporters who come from working-class backgrounds because there's so few of them these days. So would you like to hire a black reporter if you have a coverage spot where predominantly black people live? I think that would be helpful in that sense, but it's really a nuanced thing because you wouldn't say then, yeah. well, in a predominantly white community, I can only hire a white. Yeah, that writer. was the trap. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. You don't want to say the reporter of color can only cover those issues. They can cover any kind of issue. The person who is Jewish doesn't just cover Jewish issues. I, mm -hmm. I think that's a dangerous trap. Uh, I think the argument that Rex, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, has always made is that if your group was representational, in other words, if it really covered the entire waterfront, you were going to have access that you weren't going to have otherwise. Yeah, I think that's true. And if you have an assignment editor who represents a community other than the majority, you're going to get coverage that is outside the majority expectation, and that's a good thing to challenge expectations and stereotypes. And that goes back to this question about, you know, covering the cops. When all the cops were white Irishmen, it made sense if your cops reporters were, too. You wouldn't think a, a second thing about it. But you get to that locked view, and that's what gives more credibility than is deserved sometimes to people who are lying to well, you. Well, that's so interesting, Rex, because let's just say the reporter was Jewish-American. And, you know, the, the widespread expectation was everybody was going to be Irish in the game. Does the information that you are getting change based on people's religion? It may well. And we have to live with that and say we're going to contest that and contend with that. And that's where we've run out of time oh, for this no. week. Yeah, I'm afraid Just so. when Judy was looking around <laughs> skeptically. <laughs> Just saying, what the hell are we going to do next? All right, that is the end of the Media Project for this week. We have Ira Fussfeld and Judy Patrick and Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith, and we have gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us this week once again on the Media Project. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, city desk, hold the press, hold the press, extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. ding ling ding ling 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 Now newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But the Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Times Union and Substack columnist. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of The Daily Freeman. Listen to The Media Project online anytime at wamc.org or schedule a podcast 
wherever you get your podcasts. Or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.